0: Hi, welcome to Drunken PM Radio. My name is Dave Pryor. This is a podcast that's going to focus on project management and agile. I've been doing podcasts for a long time, but I wanted to try to change up the format. So, this is a brand new test. Uh, I'd love to get any feedback you guys have good, bad, or whatever, you can reach me uh, at drunkenpm at gmail.com or on Twitter at drunkenpm. And the podcast is sponsored by Projects at Work, which is a website dedicated to providing project management professionals with the insight they need to become more successful in practicing their craft. So you can find a bunch of my stuff, as well as a lot of information contributed by people far smarter than me at at projectsatwork.com. Now, the first interview I have is with Shane Hasty. Now, if you don't know who Shane is, shame on you, because he's been in the business for 30 years. He's the chief knowledge engineer and agile practice lead at Software Education. He's also on the board of the Agile Alliance, and you may know him from InfoQ. Um, Shane is a really smart guy, very deep in how project management works and how Agile works. And we're going to talk about project management, different hybrid models, how they go together. We're going to try to figure out what organizational agility actually means. And we're also going to talk about bimodal. So if you're getting up to speed on that, uh, you should definitely find something valuable in there. And the second interview is going to go very, very deep on the geek side. I've got Troy McGinnis and John Cook. So Troy is the president of Focused Objective, and John is a consultant who works in applied math. Statistics and computation. We're going to be talking about how to measure and track agile projects at the portfolio level, how to look at waterfall projects along with agile projects at the portfolio level, and how to try to gain back some of the predictability that a lot of people feel like they lose when they move from waterfall over to agile. You can definitely argue that they never had the predictability to to begin with, but it is something that everybody's chasing. And Troy and John have a lot of different models that they've come up with to help people gain a better understanding of what's actually happening and what might happen in the future. So I hope you'll enjoy. Um, Again, any feedback would be great. DrunkenPM at gmail.com or at DrunkenPM on Twitter. And please check out ProjectsAtWork.com. Thanks. All right, so here we go. The interview with Shane Hasty. So I have stuff... That I would like to ask you about. But, Fire away. Okay, so the main thing I wanted to like to talk about is organizational agility and bimodal and hybrid stuff. I'll give you my initial take, and then, and then I want to see where you are with organizational agility. But I, I see that there's this hybrid thing that people want where they don't have to do too much. They can just kind of grab some waterfall and grab some agile, whatever seems comfortable, and slap it together and call it a hybrid model and keep doing that because it's easier. And then there's the thing that PMI has been promoting for the past year, the organizational agility thing, where it seems like you've got the need for agile and waterfall and innovation and change mixed together in some way that I wasn't able to find a lot of explanation about how. All right, so then there's bimodal, which Gartner says is a new version of waterfall with a new version of agile or innovation or something that's rapid, fail fast and learn oriented. And there's going to have to be change management in there too. And they say that it already exists, but there's no explanation of how personally.
1: Yeah. I think everyone is trying to figure out the how at the moment.
0: Okay. So do you think that hybrid models are going to continue
1: to exist?
0: I mean, I I feel like they can't not exist.
1: They've got to, because there are some things... um, If we just think of the different types of work, right? there are some things that are fundamentally predictive and sequential.
0: Okay, like, for example?
1: Like um, civil engineering construction. Okay. Like rolling out an infrastructure upgrade. Okay. Then... So and, that, and, that lets
0: all the infrastructure guys that are like, how am I supposed to do Agile? That kind of lets them off the hook.
1: Yeah, that okay. lets them off the hook uh, at one level in terms of their, their implementation. But what it doesn't let them off the hook is in the, the areas where human creativity is necessary and useful in the design of work. Okay. And that's where, you know, we're, the knowledge worker activities of today, that's where the economy is, that's where money is being is gonna be made. That's where innovation happens, that's where creativity comes in. So if we t- if we take the infrastructure guys, um they're Rolling out a new, rolling Windows 10 out across a 10,000-person organization. Okay. The initial planning activity there is a knowledge worker activity. Right. There you've got to, and and there you really do want creativity. You want innovation. How can we do this with the least disruption to the organization? How can we... uh, plan you know what is the what testing should we do what's what's the MVP on this uh, what are the what are the exceptions figure all of that stuff out and that's a creative activity
0: but that's the architect
1: so, right yeah that's the architecture that's the um, the big picture understanding but once they've figured that out then you want to, to roll it out incrementally. You don't want a huge amount of iteration. Iteration is where you change and adapt. Right. There may be a certain level of iteration because we've rolled out into, say, one group or one area and we learned that, oh, in our initial plan, we dropped something or we didn't think about it, so now let's pause, reassess, and then... Increment the uh, iterate and increment. But most of the work in that space would be incremental in, in that they're going from maybe one business area to another or one physical department to another and rolling it out progressively that way. Okay. There's not a huge amount of additional learning going on.
0: So if, so, I, if I'm wearing, if I'm the PMP guy, finding my way to this interview, I'm doing a happy dance right now because I can say the architect gets to be creative, they can plan it out and then hand the work down to the worker bees who will go execute.
1: Yeah. And at one level, that is the truth. Okay. In some of those activities.
0: But then the agile people are all spitting on themselves right now going, no, 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 no.
1: Again, taking my example of the Windows 10 rollout. Yeah. There's not a lot of learning once you've figured it out. Okay. But then we go to another area of the business where maybe what we're trying to do is to launch a new insurance product. Okay. This is a brand new marketplace we've never been in. Yeah. This is a completely new type of product. Well, here, learning is everything. So now trying to to even do the uh, to come up with the the waterfall predictive plan is actually a total waste of time. What you want is lean startup as a a very, very quick learning you know what uh, who's our market? Will people buy this? If we had this product, would we, could we launch it into that marketplace? And,
0: yeah, would anybody respond to it?
1: Will they respond to it? So validate and get to a pivot enough times to get to a stable business model. I think that's something that, uh, on an aside, this is something that I, I think is often lost in the lean startup space, is we talk about build, measure, learn, and then the pivoting, but there's a point when you've got to stop pivoting, where you've got a business model that makes sense, and that's when you're moving from the build, measure, learn, and now you move on to, uh, and here, agile is absolutely spot on. This is the the learning and adapting. So
0: in in what you just described, though, it's almost like I mean, kind of bigger, bigger picture. It seems like the goal is not to adopt agile practices, but to change the culture of the entire company so that the primary focus is learning. Yeah. Which is, which is sounds, it's easy to say, but that's not what's happening in the companies most of us go into today. That's not the focus.
1: Yes. And and the other thing about it, this isn't new. You know, Peter Senge's work on the, the learning organization. This has been around for decades. Do you think that we're making progress there? It feels to me like we are okay there, i've I've worked with a few organizations where we've achieved that, right? But that took a huge amount of organizational fortitude and courage to be prepared to make the changes yeah, it just it I seems see like we've
0: it, been carrying this agile banner for a long time and now. I mean, in what you were just talking about, it's almost like the, the Agile banner is the thing we're going to throw down and say, yeah, that's just a tool. That's just a way of doing things. That's not the thing that we should actually be chasing, which is this greater knowledge and this ability to learn from how we work and to be more mindful about what we're doing.
1: Absolutely. Agile is just a, a set of tools, and it's a very nice brand. Yeah. Um, Philippe Christian put it beautifully. Which organization would, would stand up in public and say, we are not Agile? Yeah. I asked
0: that in all my classes, like, who wants to stand up and defend waterfall? Nobody ever raises their hand. But we're but, still addicted to it, even though we. I mean, that's absolutely. That's because, the gap that I see. That it's just it's like it's getting wider almost. Um. Or, or maybe it, not wider. Maybe it's becoming more obvious.
1: Yeah, I think that's. I think that's what's happening. Is it? It is becoming clear, and there are some people, and and if we think of. In, in organizations, you know, people have been successful in the old way of working.
0: Yeah, that's what got them to those big offices.
1: That's right. So now we're asking them to, to adopt a paradigm that is quite significantly different. Yeah. Now, what I do see, and, and I have a lot of faith in the intelligence of the average manager, my belief is and, and maybe it's a belief and it's a faith thing but i truly feel that they do genuinely care they want the best for their organizations but they also want the best for themselves yeah and for their teams they there there are not many pathological managers out there right you know, they these are people who've got to a position in their organizations because they've worked hard and they want to do something good What we've got to help them understand is that the way that they worked to get to where they were might have worked in the old paradigm, but the the whole global paradigm of business has changed. What we have to do is to find the combination of those techniques and practices that are going to work effectively in this organization. Now, some of the brands have packaged things together. Scrum has got a set of of principles and and practices and so forth and a nice framework. And there are some organizations where the Scrum out-of-the-box framework is, is absolutely ideal. Most of them, it's not. XP. If you are building software, then the XP practices make a whole lot of sense. If you're not building software, then what are the equivalents of the XP practices? Can you design an insurance product with test-driven development? Well, yes, you can. What would the tests be for this piece of the product? And then before you deploy that piece of the product, you run the test and you get feedback. I guess I get
0: I get a little worried. Like you said a few minutes ago that the paradigm for business has changed. and I, And I agree. And any article you read in any business magazine is going to tell you the same thing. But I guess I wonder about like the man on the street the people at the companies that are still doing stuff the same old way thinking yeah we got to figure out how to get agile because everything's changed but we're still making money the way we used to make it it's like they're almost like survivalists filling a shelter for something that's supposed to happen but may or may not happen only now we're saying oh now there's these other ways too like you've got you know, you can look at the enterprise stuff, or if you look at the organizational agility or the bimodal stuff, it's like there's this other thing they have to prepare themselves for now.
1: Yeah. And and this, yeah, this is the unfortunate reality. It's the world, the, the pace of change is, is, is increasing.
0: It, it almost feels like with the rate of change that we're asking of companies and of culture and of people... One of the things I'm starting to wonder is if we're going to need to have like a cultural change officer, like a C-level officer whose focus is change.
1: I think it may well be worth it. but the, and, and change becomes everybody's responsibility. Now, you know, we say people resist change, but actually we don't. So what do we resist then? We resist change... That isn't good for us, where we can't see the benefits. So a huge part is is making visible the the benefits and value. And it's going to be hard. The things like the Virginia Satya change curve shows us that we go through periods of uh, of resistance, of discomfort. But when we can see the value and we can see why, and it has to be value for me as an individual as well as, for the organization. I, I think that's the
0: key right there is there has to be a win for the individual, like a personal win. Yeah. yeah. Not just I like get to keep my job, but like something that I get.
1: Yeah. And uh, if we look at work by people like Dan Pink, Autonomy, Mastery and Purpose, if we look yeah. at the, the whole structure of, the, uh, of all of the agile methods are around leveraging The skill and knowledge of individuals. So it's it's a radical change in management.
0: Who we don't even trust. Like that's (laughs) back to the Menlo thing. We have to not only respect him, but we've got to teach ourselves how to trust people again. And we're still teaching every new crop of people in the workforce. Well, not every new crop, but a lot of people are still getting indoctrinated through the traditional, you know, command and control. I don't trust
1: you, do what I say. Kind of work. And we and and this is something that successful organizations figure out yeah
0: so how do you how do you define you call it organizational agility or business agility or organizational business agility what's your preferred way of referring to it
1: (sighs) business agility (laughs) i suppose is 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 probably the term i use most frequently but
0: (laughs) so how do you explain that to somebody how do you how do you clarify what that means
1: it's the ability to adapt to the changes that are happening around the organization and within the organization at a rate that is faster than the rate of those changes and to take advantage of those changes to add value.
0: So Netflix would be an example, maybe. Yeah. Like they, everybody thought they were to, down for the count like Blockbuster and they figured out a way to
1: come back. Yeah. And they were prepared to sacrifice themselves.
0: And piss everybody off in the process.
1: Yeah. Because they knew that if they didn't somebody was going to do it to them yeah
0: well and maybe it was just desperation I mean like <laughs> we're done could it be we need something <laughs> yeah so what about the bimodal thing have you looked into that at all I mean do you see any any value in that?
1: I haven't done a lot of, of reading and research on it and it it looks to me and, and maybe I'm being slightly cynical is it's another way of branding and, and packaging the these ideas if you I think, as with agile there's a lot of of, of fundamental good ideas yeah. and and I think a lot of it starts with that complexity stuff yeah and and understanding the the space or the domain that you are in from that that complexity perspective and then looking at the the right set of practices and there's there's many different practices out there yeah um Leveraging the skill and knowledge of the people in your organisation is hugely important. You know, they are the collective wisdom and the people in any organisation will amount to a level of brilliance that will be absolutely astounding
0: when it's allowed to happen. See, this is one of the things that I've been thinking about lately too. Is that things like, you know, you've got organizational agility or bimodal, you've got things like scaled agile framework and lesson and, and dad and all these different approaches to trying to f- find ways to answer questions that we don't even totally understand the question yet, but we know there's this gap yeah. and, and it's almost like this knowledge worker revolution of like this period of invention, you know, and creation where like people keep coming up with new stuff and a lot of it it's like, yeah, that's cool. But I, it's almost like listening to Robert Johnson and expecting to hear Keith Richards, which you will hear eventually, but not for a long time. So within, within Agile, are you seeing anything new kind of crop up that's got you excited? Um, or did you see anything at the conference that you were like, hey, that's pretty cool that I have not seen that before?
1: The, one of the things that personally I saw at the conference that I'd heard about that, that got me quite excited was uh, the Black Swan, storm, uh, Black Swan farming stuff on cost of delay and how clearly they've conveyed that. Okay. Because the, an area I've been looking a lot at is, is trying to address and define value for organizations. And it's hard. Cost of delay is one aspect of value. Okay. But it's not, it's not the only aspect. And, and this, is the, this is the challenge. Value is a many many factored thing yeah Uh, there's um
0: this is another change people are going to have to deal with as well
1: then yeah (laughs) Uh, there's there's organizational value there's social value and these these are things that do matter and if we take um commercial organizations should they care about let's take the one we mentioned earlier the environment well if they want to stay in business, yes. Because a whole lot of customers are becoming more and more concerned and actually choosing whether or not they will do business based on that. So this now becomes an element of value for the organization.
0: And so we have to teach the organization to also consider employee satisfaction value. Yep. And then we also have to teach the employees. I mean, yep. I think you may be a little bit more optimistic than I... I would like to be more optimistic, but I think that there are still a lot of people who see that as, I can write my own ticket and do whatever the hell I want and not worry about being responsible. We have to, I guess, keep reminding people that for this thing to work, everybody's got to stand up and be accountable for it. Yeah.
1: Maybe it's because I live in New Zealand and we're a much more <laughs> uh, egalitarian society. Maybe. Maybe, yeah. Um, that's we're pretty. Not, cool. We're not Sweden, but we're not actually not <laughs> a long way not, not a long way behind them.
0: If we could all be Sweden, it would be a very strange world. We'd have we'd have to drink a lot. Um, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Dave, it's
1: it's been my pleasure.
0: This was fun, so, and care. I and I I'm, I'm excited that I got to ask somebody about <laughs> organizational agility and bimodal stuff because I'm like I can't find people to talk to about it so. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Dave. Go
0: well. All right. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Shane Hasty. And next up is the interview with Troy McGinnis and John Cook. Hi, this is Dave Pryor for Projects at Work. And right now, I'm very excited because we're going to get our data science geek on, um, John Cook and Troy McGinnis have taken some time out of their busy Fridays to help us talk a little bit about data and understand, hopefully help me understand a little bit more about it. So guys, thank you for for joining me for the podcast. Oh, thank you. you. And So I'm going to ask each of you to say a little bit about, you know, what your background is and what you do. So John, would you be willing to go first?
2: Sure. So uh, I'm an applied mathematician. I've kind of come full circle. I started out as an academic, I left academic academia to work as a programmer and project manager, and then sort of came back into academia, and now I'm an independent consultant.
0: Okay. And Troy?
3: Well, I'm a, an amateur mathematician who struggles with a calculator, uh, but I do have a passion around helping teams measure and predict what they're going to do in the future with more details. So uh, I run a small company called Focus Objective, and we just try and help people with simple math problems.
0: And, and just so if you're not, if you're not familiar with, with these guys, or you haven't heard when Troy and I have done interviews before, so Troy is one of the smartest people that I ever get to talk to, and every time I talk to him, I feel like my brain's going to explode. And he introduced me to John and said, this is somebody I talk to. So John's probably super genius and going to make my whole head split in half during the interview, but... Um, I would like to ask you guys some questions about data in the project management space or in the agile space, either one software in general, do you guys think that people are data literate enough to be not dangerous to themselves?
3: Oh, not at all. I think people run with scissors every day in our industry. (laughs) Uh, They're they're very, uh, I mean, there are a couple of great examples uh, that I think we can improve on and and, and that's that sort of, why I rely on John a lot as well. One is is well, One thing that really irks me is that you know the lean the lean startup bit and everyone's running these experiments, but they're nowhere near uh, literate enough to understand when they have enough data to s- accept or or uh, dismiss a any premise that they have. So there's that side of it. But on on our side, especially when I get into the market, it's I watch people measure data and use charts that they that were invented in 1970, 1980. And we haven't really progressed along from there. And those charts were very much about making decisions in a manufacturing context, not an innovative development context. And I think we we set ourselves up to make very poor decisions using those charts.
0: Okay. Regarding those charts, I guess my perspective on it is I, I, I get angry about them, too, and especially what some of the tool vendors do with them. But it's like an addiction, right? People have an addiction to this form of looking at work, this way of seeing reporting, and it's what they were brought up on. It's how they were raised, as if you know they only ever ate at McDonald's, and now we're saying McDonald's is bad for you. You should go eat something organic, and they're like, no, but this is the food that I've always had. Um, how do we help them see that they're looking at the wrong stuff?
3: Oh well, yeah, I mean we we did it in food. I mean we went from fat just as a single value to trans fat and. And, and good fat, you know, we do the same thing with cholesterol values. You know, we over time we discern out of the things we can measure easily and show uh, which which parts help us and correlate to a negative impact down the path more than others. And I think we're uh, we're not eager enough to find those those leading indicators of future problems.
0: Okay. So John, what do you think we should be looking at in terms of, you know, metrics or, or what what should we be measuring at, at sort of maybe the larger company-wide level if you look at a portfolio of projects? What are the things we should we should be paying attention to?
2: Well, one thing that you mentioned is, you know, having multiple projects. I mean, from so many things I see out there, there's this notion that nobody ever works on more than one thing at a time. So I th- I think we could be more realistic about people who work on multiple projects uh, in in some environments. Some environments are more uh, focused, but I think an awful lot are less focused than that.
0: So you're talking about just trying to get an understanding of of how much work people are actually doing so we're not um, over committing them or or assuming they're going to do more than they're actually capable of because they're actually
2: human beings and not machines. (laughs) That's a good way to put it.
0: So what about, what do you guys think about organizations? Because I've been in places where Providing them with the data, and Troy, you mentioned a, a place you know, you've know you been working where they, they, they are very open with the data. Um, you mentioned that before we started recording, but um, I worked in a place where I was able to go into a meeting and sit down with executive leadership and say, look, this guy over here who's sitting across from you, he's at 800% of what you think his capacity is, and his capacity isn't even 100% because nobody's productive you know, every single minute of the day. And they acknowledge it. And they say, okay, we understand. He's at 800%. He's just going to have to do that anyway.
2: <laughs> right.
0: I mean, do you, guys, do you guys see that a lot, or is that kind of an argument that if you're in the building, they're already past that part?
3: Oh, I, well, see, it, I see it as a chronic problem. Sorry, John. I, I, I see it as a chronic problem. But even allocating them just to 100% is already in the damage zone. Uh, you know, If you look at you know, freeways, when freeways are clogged with congestion during peak hour, your travel times are a lot longer than what it is when, when there's you know, 1 a.m. in the morning, when there's no traffic around. So if you look up anything that Rynenson has written or anything we know about network traffic and CPU allocation, uh, you know, we would never run our service at 100% capacity because when an extra job comes along, they have to work. Right. And there's a delay, but we're quite happy to load our, our developers up to 100 plus percent, and then sort of not understand why they can't get anything completed. <laughs> um, so, so I, you know, I, I think given our work has a lot of inventiveness and a lot of uncertainty in technical risk, you know, we we should be striving to get our to only allocate people up to 75 to 80 percent, so they have capacity to um, to absorb those variations, and uh, so it's. Yeah, uh, more power to you to get them to agree to only allocate them to 100%, but they're already in the damage zone at that point.
2: Like a lot of things, this is taken to a ridiculous extreme in academia because there you have multiple funding sources, and you may have someone who's on a project 7%, and on this project, you know, 12.2%, and uh, it's just a complete fiction.
0: And But the software sort of incur. I mean, if you've got any kind of PM tool that allows you to do leveling, you know – it's going to help you do that. Right. So it's, it's almost, I guess, one of, one of the things that I find really curious is the ways in which the tools that we use to theoretically manage our work kind of foster this dysfunction. And, and as you get into the larger kind of more enterprise-wide tools, like I sat in a, in a demo session one time last year and I asked the, the tool vendor, like, can you show me a product backlog log laid out next to um, like an activity network diagram? From a Gantt chart, and oh yeah, two clicks, and it was all set up. Predecessor relationships between all the stuff in the product backlog and everything, and that horrifies
3: me. <laughs>
0: but yeah. we only know to ask for the stuff that we know. So how do we how do we teach people to ask for better stuff?
3: Yeah, I I think. Yeah, you know, we, as an industry, we, we struggle to even ask those questions. I mean, we, we know that dependencies are a big problem, and we know that we're partial body staffing many projects, but we don't know which ones. Um, you know, we know that um, there are a lot of uh, market changes, but we and then we try and fit this into a framework of agile, which says, "Oh, don't worry about that. Ignore all that. Just make a good decision for the next two weeks and move on." Um, I think we have lost a bit of the that that sort of Project management um, history about the skills we knew this stuff, and then we sort of threw it all away. We said we no longer need managers, we no longer need to manage uh, manage capacity, and, and probably we, we need to bring some of those aspects back yeah agile doesn
2: 't let you defy the laws of physics I mean, it doesn 't allow you to be in two places at once or
0: but it sure makes it seem, I guess, in some cases, it seems like that might be possible. Do, do you guys think that, I mean, I know you both, you, you both put a lot of stock in probability, right? We're right. studying probability. So do you think it will ever get to a point where we could say, well, here's this team, and this team, when they encounter a new project... Um, and these kinds of things are going on, they have a probability of a velocity of X, which means, I mean, almost like baseball, where they can say, like, on a rainy Tuesday at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and this guy gets thrown a curveball at this speed, he always hits it this way. Is it, is it going to ever get to that point where we can answer the need for certainty by saying, well, 9 times out of 10, we have enough data to be able to tell you what's going to happen?
2: I think we could get closer to that. But you have to have a fairly predictable environment before it's even meaningful to talk about these things. When you're rolling dice, you can talk about the you know the probability of getting boxcars or whatever. But if if you're playing dice and you're on a you know standing on a, a ball and juggling and the, and you know and you got all these things going on at at one time you know then there's bigger sources of uncertainty. I mean, when you have to have a fairly mature environment to be even for it to even make sense to say when this person has this task uh, here's here's some idea how long it's going to take.
3: I think we can sort of say that eight times out of ten there will be ten tasks done, but I think we can't tell you which ten
2: all right, I think that's fine so
0: so what if I'm talking about agile and we're talking about a team, what would need to be in place for us to be able to say this is stable enough or you know, it's actually they may be working on different kinds of projects, but are there other environmental things that we could say? If we can stabilize these, then we can start to track that stuff and get some sense of what might
3: happen. To me, I think my main metric is the the number of interruptions per week. If that's high, uh, then I then they're, then they're more likely to um, be a system, I, I'm more likely to want to measure the system influences rather than the work. If there's a low number of interruptions or the team is absolutely dedicated, then uh, I'm more likely to measure velocity as a, as a time correlation. Well,
2: I like what Troy said about you know, measuring how often someone is interrupted. If you simply keep track of how often you're interrupted, I think you'll probably be motivated to reduce that amount.
0: But that's not a metric that most managers are going to, or senior level people are really going to ask for, right? They're going to want to know about utilization and what percent done are we or, you know, what's our overall velocity. And if you say, well, we got interrupted 15 times. Um, how do you help them understand the negative impact of that?
3: Oh, they know it. They just don't want to, it's hard for them to reconcile it at the moment. Um, okay. You know, once you visualize it, 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 it gets seen and, that can be visualized just by every time you ask the people on the team, every time you get interrupted from an external source, grab a red post-it note and stick it on your monitor. You know, at the, at the end of the week, you start sort of seeing whose monitors are actually plastered in red post-it notes. You've just collected sort of data over that. Every time this red post-it note come along, this person stopped doing what you planned that they were doing. <laughs> and, you know, go and, go and build that stack and stick it on your boss's door. Um, they'll get the point.
0: But is that going to include interruptions from team members or just people outside of the project in general?
3: Do the experiment. For the first week, do just external okay. sort of factors. For the next week, do internal factors. For the next week, get people to start thinking about um, how they how they visualize the work they actually do rather than the work that the, the, the online tools or the tool vendors say they do. Because there's a lot missing and it's that gap there's a lot for us to learn if we just analyze the gap between what's in the electronic tools and what a person actually does. Well, and I think
2: there's also some lack of empathy there because it's not as devastating to a manager to be interrupted as a programmer. So I, mean, I think there's some education needed there to explain why you know, interrupting a programmer three times in the day could just shoot their productivity uh, completely. Whereas, you know, the managers say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm interrupted 50 times a day. What's the big deal.
0: Now, do you guys think if we're going to track interruptions, we should also track whether or not the impact of that interruption is like a positive or a negative in terms of either progress or creativity? Cause sometimes people are going to distract you in a way that gives you brand new ideas that are going to help what you're doing.
2: Okay. So th- there's another distinction that's important where if, if something's an interruption from a colleague, that interruption may negatively impact your productivity, but positively impact the productivity of the team. Okay. Because they're stuck on something, and uh, they're getting nowhere, and you can get them unstuck. So maybe they slow you down, but you, you take them from zero to something. So yeah. it's a net benefit to the team. Now, if a telemarketer calls, uh, then uh, that's not a net benefit to anybody except the telemarketer.
3: You know, even the first metric we want to, what we're trying to do by capturing the interruptions is to put a policy around what ones should be immediate and which ones can be deferred. Uh, and I think capturing the data first about what the sources are allows everyone to have a great conversation about how should we handle these to maximum benefit.
0: Yeah, I guess it gets a little bit. I don't know, scary or maybe overwhelming to me that there's so many different things that you could be like, hey, if I could have that piece of information, that would be cool too.
3: Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. We're, we're trying to highlight what factors have a, a multiplying negative effect on the teams. And yeah, I mean, they got to where they were, but it was a level playing field because everyone did the wrong thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they all suck. So it worked well.
3: Yeah, right. It's easy to stand out. Okay. Uh, you only had to be slightly a bit like better. like' I mean, heading and what we 're trying to do here is be orders of magnitude better than that and I think if, when the managers do start you know collecting data, having a hypothesis, running a proper experiment, making a change, and seeing that it had the intended consequence, those managers will will be the ones which breed
0: so maybe the thing that they should be chasing, like you just said, are these productivity multipliers right so that it's not just if we remove this you'll get a little bit faster but if we remove this you're going to get three times faster
3: and that's that's where i spend my day fighting because at the moment utilization and making a team slightly more a percentage improved it's just a linear improvement and i think what we're trying to do by looking at systems is trying to find the multiplying factors
0: so what are the so other than interruptions? Are there other things right now that you're kind of keying in on and thinking that's probably a really big deal? Uh, I, I don't know if you're willing to say or not, but if you if yeah,
3: no, I mean, I, I mean, I am. I think the way we the way we uh, prioritize sort of defect work, I think we if I don't see enough effort of looking back about if we could find and eliminate the root cause of this starter defect, not only will we fix these five, we will inhibit another 25 being created in the future.
0: So John because of the work that you do I'm curious to know what your thoughts about that are I mean is technical debt viewed the same way in the work that you do as it is in regular software that doesn't you know or or regular work that doesn't involve saving people's lives
2: (laughs) I guess there's different kinds of technical debt when you're dealing with say a data driven application um, I guess the thing that, that I worry about the most is whether we're even looking at something meaningful. <laughs> you know, if you're trying to quantify something that's not, uh, quantifiable and, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, moot what you do from then on, you, you can split hairs, but may, you know, if you're, uh, if you're, if you're, trying to do the impossible from the beginning, then, uh, then that's a problem.
0: Is, is the mission really to get all the data and figure out as much as we can, or is it, like you were alluding to earlier, is it just enough to make a
3: jump? This is where we differ from a lot of industries. We're not trying to predict the future. We're trying to make our next decision better than it would have been if we didn't have any data. And the moment that we take action on that decision, we change the ground rules again, and our job is to now find the next decision to improve the next decision we're going to make yeah and uh so it's it's you know we're not part of really the predictive science we're part of the forcing sciences you know we're we're, uh, we're trying to um, get, we're trying to find out out of the options we have which one is our best our best course of action um and uh yeah i mean i that's why i i feel our biggest impact we offer is a bit of a sounding board about sensitivity analysis which factor if you could move would has the best chance of moving the needle the most yeah and and i find whereas people would expect us to come in with more and more metrics and detail we're more about removing metrics and detail okay and and trying to find which factors are the ones which if you could work on it would have the biggest bang for the buck and then it's back to the team about well how might you improve that aspect the most? So I, I find that, um, you know, it's probably counter to what most people think. Uh, as you get more into math and science, it's more about what you don't worry about than what you do.
0: Cool. All right. Thank you guys for, for doing the interview today. So, so, Troy, if people want to check, if they want to find you, they can go to focusobjective.com.
3: That's right.
0: Or find you on Twitter at T underscore That's right. So it's M-A-G-E-N-N-I-S. Correct. And John, you're at John D. Cook?
2: Yes. And my website is also johndcook.com. There there are a million John Cooks out there, so I have to use my middle initial.
0: Okay. And you are heavy with the Twitter, too. You've got all different kinds of setups for that, right?
2: Oh, yeah. I have a few um, topical accounts, like uh, a computer science account, a Probability account and so forth.
0: Cool. Thanks, guys. Enjoy your weekend. Good weekend. Bye bye. Bye.
2: All right. That's the end of the first episode of Drunken
0: PM Radio. Thanks for listening. And again, any feedback would be greatly appreciated. You can reach me at drunkenpm at gmail.com or on Twitter at drunkenpm. And remember to check out our sponsor, projectsatwork.com. Thanks.